Last week, if you were here, you heard part one of our sermon series, our, our two-part sermon series, uh, our Christmas series this year. And um, to be honest with you, when uh, Neil and I were, were hammering it out and working it out, um, and we were deciding who was going to do what and, and kind of the themes that were going to be hit and whatnot, uh, I said, Neil, there's no way I would ever get up in front of the people and preach that sermon, so it's on you. And, uh, and he did. If, uh, if you weren't here, I mean, let me just, let me just remind you what happened. Uh, listen to the, just the title of this sermon series, which he, he came up with, uh, by the way, just FYI. A terrorist attack and a refugee crisis, the story of Christmas. Not what you normally thought of when you set up your, your creche or your nativity scene or did your advent calendar. And, and what was really even more fascinating, if you were here last week and, and you were listening, Neil told a story to begin the sermon. And the story was kind of gut-wrenching, let's be honest. It was the story of a terrorist attack. And he framed this, this, this tale of, of a, a leader, a president, a, a king of a country who, who finds out that there are terrorists in his midst and is trying to respond because everyone in the, in this, in the capital city of this country is, is frightened and scared because they've got inside intelligence that this is happening. And so this king takes drastic measures to eliminate the threat. And then Neil read from Matthew 2. And it was revealed that the terrorist attack was the birth of Christ, a new king who was going to upset the status quo, who was going to be a threat to the people in power, to the peace of the city. And it, and it really was uncomfortable. I, when we were talking about it, it was uncomfortable. When I was listening to the message this week, it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for us to think, as we are in 2015, as Americans especially, uh, in the midst of just horrible things that have happened recently uh, in both San Bernardino and Paris, we are very heightened, very sensitive to the threat of, of terrorism. And, and to hear the story of Christmas told in such a way that we honestly identified a little more with Herod than with Mary and Joseph made things really uncomfortable. From the perspective of Herod, the people of Jerusalem, the birth of a new king was like a terrorist attack. Herod's response ignored the possibility of heavenly realities and focused on what honestly we focus on today, real politic. What are we going to do about this? But Neil did bring out some major differences. Thank the Lord. Unlike terrorists today, Jesus gave himself to bring life and not to take it away. Jesus wasn't terrorizing people. He was terrorizing demonic powers and the enemy Satan. And yet, even in light of those caveats... In the midst of our current political discourse, in the midst of, let's be honest, the climate of fear that you and I live in when we think about our country and our world, it is worth asking, are we only focused on this? And are we doing anything different than Herod? And if not, is that a problem? And if so, is it okay? 
So, thank heavens I did not preach that sermon. I, I just, wow. Bold, man. Bold. Bold move. I get a happier one. The refugee crisis. Um, before we look at the text for today, I'm just going to set up a little bit. I want to talk about refugees and strangers as we meet them in the Bible. Um, the Bible is, is replete, full, filled with stories of strangers and refugees. Even our, uh, the father of the faith, Abraham, was a refugee um, in many places. He cast himself off out of where he was in, in Mesopotamia and moved out seeking a new life. And what's so interesting, if you, if you just get like a you know, bird's eye view about the Bible, the very idea of being a stranger, of being in some place that's not your home, is treated as bizarre. In a way that we probably don't um, really feel. Um, and, and that's because nobody left their home in the ancient world. That never happened. So if you were born somewhere, uh, you stayed there. Unless there was something really, really awful that took place to move you out. And that's not just because travel was hard. It's because the ancient world associates land with identity. You know, um, even if you just think of the echoes of scripture in your ears. The land of our fathers. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land is who you are. And so when you're taken out of the land, you become not yourself. In a way that is very strange for us. None of us are like, oh, I'm moving out of Mission Viejo. I'm losing a part of myself. Okay, if you do feel that way, something's wrong with you. <laughs> you, you, you have, uh, you've, you've been co-opted by, by Orange County, San Juan Capistrano, whatever. If you leave Southern California and you feel like you're not you anymore, then something's a little bit wrong. Uh, because we don't think about land that way. We don't think of it as, as, as having these deep, deep roots. And this is especially true in light of globalization, in light of um, the international, transnational economy. Uh, we don't have the idea as much anymore that, oh, this is the house that my, my, my father was in, and my grandfather, and my great-great-grandfather, and this is our land that we've had for generations and generations. That's not us. And so it's a little bit hard for us to get into that mindset, and yet it's there. If you're an exile, if you're a stranger, that's weird. You're not complete. You're not whole. And if you are an exile, or if you're a stranger, it's because there's been something like a civil war, or there's been a famine, or there, you, you're in legal trouble. Or you, uh, A lot of times, honestly, um, in the ancient world, if you left your home, it's because you'd committed a terrible crime. Um, you, were, you were run out of town, as we might think. And so when we read the word stranger in your New King James, when you open it up, you're going to find this word stranger all throughout Scripture. Every time you read it, it's not a bad idea to have in your mind what we think of as refugee. Because things were bad where you were. So bad, in fact, that you had to get out. And you had to lose a little bit of yourself to do it. The Christmas story. Matthew two thirteen to 15. Now when the Magi, in Neil's telling of, of the terrorist attack, this was like the intelligence services. When the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child Jesus and his mother, flee, get out of here to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Well, if you know the story in Matthew, you know exactly what's happening. Joseph gets a tip 
that the civil war is about to break out. He understands just before, just on the eve of the crisis, what's about to take place. And in, in the story, Herod commands uh, the execution of every child under the age of two, every male child under the age of two. Now you can imagine, there weren't just babies dying in violence here, okay? Because when soldiers come to your house and try to take your children, you fight back. A period of massive unrest, a period of what we might think of as civil war, or at least revolution, is taking place. And Joseph gets a tip, and he runs quickly. He gets out as quick as he can. And he's told to stay there, to put down roots, to live there, to be a part of that community. Where does he go? Egypt. Great, right? No, wrong. We know what Egypt did to refugees. We know how they were treated there. Egypt was a ghetto for Jews in the ancient Near East. There were a few Jews, uh, we could think of Philo, who um, rose to some prominence because of his family wealth in Egypt, who, who escaped that, but for the most part, they were left in their own part of the city, alone, and they only dealt with each other, other Jews, and they were ignored by the society at large. Jesus is a refugee, and he starts his life as a stranger in a foreign land. Did you know that right now there are 60 million living refugees in the world who have been dislocated from their land of birth due to war? To give you some sense of what that means, that's one out of every 122 people that's alive today is not living in their homeland because of a war. And Jesus was first. Let's continue to, uh, in, in the text. Matthew two thirteen to 15, verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Matthew, he looks at this story. And he sees that the young Jesus is taken away. And, he's, and, and, and he doesn't just see this as a, a happenstance of history, right? He sees this in the context of all of Israel's story. And so he, under the influence of the, of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us what's really going on. God is fulfilling prophecy in this action, in this escape. To be a refugee is to fulfill prophecy. How so? Is it traditional? Is it the way that uh, we think of a lot of times prophecy? Sometimes when we think about prophecy, it's like predicting the future. So if you were to say, I'm predicting that the Golden State Warriors are going to win 72 games this NBA season and tie the 95 Bulls, that would be a, a prophecy of sorts. And if it happened, uh, I would probably make a lot of money in Vegas and it would be amazing. Um, that's one way of thinking about prophecy, and that does happen. We have uh, scripture that talks about the Messiah in that way. But I want to give us a little bit more context uh, where this quote comes from, where Matthew's uh, pulling from. He's, not, uh, he, he's actually pulling from Hosea, and, and there's a couple other places. So let's look at a few of these sources of the prophecy in Matthew. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Thus saith the Lord to the prophet Hosea. Hosea is talking about what Israel experienced in the past. And Matthew sees that, and he sees something critical, something deep, something more powerful than we might have thought before about Jesus going and living in Egypt as a refugee. He sees Jesus' experience in Egypt as a, quote, representation or a fulfillment of Israel's life. 
It's uh, in your note sheets, I think. Matthew's interpretation of Hosea 11.1 treats Jesus as the representation or fulfillment of Israel or Israel's life. What Matthew sees is he sees Jesus going into Egypt and becoming Israel in a way. Living Israel's experience after Israel. Another verse, uh, this is from Exodus 4. Then you, Moses, shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go. Why? That he may serve me. We see that God originally, in the very beginning of Israel's life, calls him out of Egypt, calls Israel, this nation, out of Egypt. Why? To serve him as a good son does. To do everything that God asks of his son. Matthew, later, under the inspiration of the Spirit, perceives that Israel didn't do this right, that Israel had failed, and that God sent Jesus to do it perfectly. So perfectly, in fact, that he lives out the experience of refugeedom, if you want to put it that way. That brings up a, you know, it's a little strange. You know, why? I mean, of all the things that God could have done with Jesus, I actually asked this uh, to the kids in, in, in Trek the other, the other day. Uh, you know, of all the ways that you could bring the Messiah in the world, very strange, very strange to bring him into a place of violence and, uh, you know, refugee crisis. Very strange that he's not born as a king. Very strange that he's, you know, in a, in a manger, you know, covered in hay or whatever. I mean, very strange. And, and, and part of that is why does God make Jesus a refugee? Um, there, there's two parts to this answer, but, but I just, I remember when I was uh, 17, uh, you guys remember Borders, Books, and Music? It's out of business now, but at the time it was a really big deal, big box stores. Um, these are places that would have everything you could possibly want. They had this huge um, selection, and so you would go there, and they would have lower prices. And if you're paying attention in the last 15 years, you realize that Jeff Bezos of Amazon.com was like, that's a really good idea. What if I did it even more? And then, of course, uh, Borders went out of business because they couldn't compete with what he was doing. But that was my first job. I worked in the music department uh, as a 17-year-old. And um, when, during my training, it was actually during Christmas time I got my job. They hired extra help to help with the holiday rush. And uh, during my training, I was trying to pay very close attention. This was like, you know, the first, I don't know, job where I wasn't working at Stony Brook or something like that. But the first time I was out in the real world doing real work, I was going to be held accountable for, so I was paying very close attention. And at the time, uh, we had these uh, little markers that you would... Um, if you, if you received a, at the register a very large bill, you would, you would hit it with a marker. And if, and, and the, the ink would, would turn a certain color, you would know it was counterfeit. Right? And so Borders had, had, had a big problem with stealing, and they'd actually had a problem with counterfeit bills, and so they were, they were teaching us how to do this little thing just to make sure that no high denomination bills were counterfeit. So during the training, it was any, any bill, $20 or more. Uh, you just, you know, do the, do the little marker thing. So here I am, a 17-year-old kid, at a huge Christmas rush. I mean, it's crazy. The line's all the way to the back. And uh, I'm sitting there, and people come in. And most people at this time are paying with pl- plastic, but occasionally someone brings in a, a, a bill. And anytime, $20 or more, just, you know, put it away. Well, a man, um, uh, an African-American man comes to the front of the uh, register, and he pays for his, uh, his stuff with a $20 bill. And I, you know, flip the thing out. And, and, as, and as I do that, and as I, I put it, he's, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, uh, 
this is what we do. We, um, it, it's just a, it's a thing. It's a, it's a pen. It's no big deal. He's like, oh, I get it. You know, a black man comes into Orange County, and this is how he gets treated. Is that right? I, I, I mean, this was the farthest thing from my mind. I, I, I was just shocked. I mean, I was being accused of just full-blown racism right there, and um, I, what, what do I do? And, and, and then he begins to make a little bit of a scene. He gets loud. Um, calls a manager over. And I can be honest with you, um, the manager put me on break immediately, and uh, I went into the back room, and I just cried. You know, growing up, the idea that um, you'd be involved in something like that, it just was, was anathema to me, and so it's really, it hurt me badly that I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to make people's lives better. I wasn't working there to, to hurt people. And that stuck with me. Fast forward about eight years, um, I get to Japan, and uh, I'm teaching English there for a couple of years. And early on in my time there, um, I was talking to the father of one of the students that I taught. And he didn't speak much English, but through you know, me speaking a little Japanese and a friend who knew a little more English, we got a conversation going. And he said, oh, my son really loves your class. I was like, oh, it's great. You know, I, it's awesome. And I find out he's in a punk rock band. Awesome. Who doesn't love punk rock? And so I'm like, I'm like oh, Hideji-san, I didn't know that. Maybe I can come to one of your shows. And then just silence. And I'm like, or not. <laughs> uh, and and uh, then the rest of the conversation is just Japanese people talking to, to each other. And I'm just sort of on the side being like, and I said something wrong. Okay. Uh, and, and afterwards, I'm talking to, my, uh, to my, my supervisor. And I'm like, what just happened there? He said, yeah, um, you know, that, the punk rock that he's talking about is very angry, and, and there's a lot of people there who um, are Japanese nationalists. Yeah, and they're, um, they, they remember very, very clearly, you know, who dropped those two atomic bombs? That's your country. I was like, oh. And then I started thinking. Ever since I've been here, and really from this point forward, I started thinking... I get treated differently here in Japan, um, and sometimes not well. I can't ever know if an interaction that I'm about to have with somebody is, you know, colored by the fact that, you know, I'm a white American, and these Japanese people have a deep-seated uh, distrust or dislike for people like me. Really, every single interaction, even when people are extra nice to you, this is what you think. You're like, are they doing that because they're aware of this problem and they're trying to make things better? So maybe they don't really like me at all, but they're acting that way just because that's what you do to be nice to people. Every single interaction gets colored until at a certain point you just, you just have to stop worrying about it because how could you even function in society? And what was interesting was, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about eight years before. Here's a person who lived in a world where there was, you know, some systemic uh, racism. Of course you would think that maybe this is because somebody doesn't like you, because of who you are. And I understood the way that man had responded to me at the cash register in a way that I'd never understood before. 
because I'd lived it. And not only that, but then because I'd lived it, it changed the way I thought about how to interact and how to conduct myself um, as, you know, a white American in a country that has, you know, a history of problems with race. What's so fascinating is that God sends Israel to Egypt for the same thing, if you can believe this. God allows the people of Israel to be refugees so they won't forget what that feels like and so that they'll live differently when they're done. An identical logic crops up in the laws regarding the stranger, the refugee, and the law of Israel. Look at just a few of these texts. This is fascinating. The stranger in Israel's law. This is from Deuteronomy. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger. Why? Because you know what it's like. And it's awful. After um, I found out that I wasn't allowed to go to certain rock shows in Japan um, for fear of my life, uh, that weekend, uh, my, my supervisor invited me uh, into his family home. This is Machida-san, uh, Mr. Machida. Um, I ended up singing at his wedding. <laughs> uh, but this was early on in our relationship. He invited me to... Um, to his, his home, and uh, we sat down, his parents didn't speak a lick of English, um, and they were rice, rice farmers, but uh, I was sitting there at the table having tea, and they served me, um, and men, at a time when I felt so isolated, so alienated, so cut off from family and home, how did that feel? That was life-changing, because I was a refugee, and I was welcomed in. And God says, Israel, you were a refugee in Egypt, and now I brought you into the land. And there's people who live like you lived, and they're in your midst. How are you going to do? What are you going to do with them? It's so interesting. When, when, when God says he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing, he's talking about Israel first. Israel, when you were in Egypt, when you were a refugee, I fed and clothed you. Those people didn't do a thing for you. They hated you. They turned you into slaves. I was the one who took care of you. And now you do the same thing. I loved you when you were a stranger. You loved the stranger too. A few more texts. This is from Exodus. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And this from Leviticus. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in, the e in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Where have we heard that love him as yourself before? That should ring in our Christian ears. Because this is what Jesus said is the fulfillment of the law. Look at Luke 10. The lawyer answered, what, you know, what is the greatest of the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your might mind. And listen to this, and your neighbor as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer, do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and just who exactly are we talking about? Who's the neighbor here? Because this guy's not dumb. Look, okay, I live next door to Glenn and Kathy. They're great. Um, 
they, they've taken care of me all my life. When I had no work, Glenn gave me a job. Um, Kathy brought me to school as a, as a kid back and forth for years. Um, I love their children, as, as irritating as Scott can be. I mean, we've been friends for so long. You know what's fun? I love loving them. I love my neighbors. But there's other people who live around me that I'm like, and the lawyer thinks the same way. He's like, Glenn and Kathy, love them, Jesus. That's what we're talking about, right? And Jesus tells a, a parable, and the parable is the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, like, oh, you want to know who your, your neighbor is? Here's the Good Samaritan. The interesting thing about that is Samaritans were considered strangers or refugees by the people of the lands of Israel. So Jesus takes these people, these strangers, the Samaritans, and he's like, no, 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 no. They know what neighborliness is. They know what it is to be your neighbor. Stranger, neighbor. So just a kind of little short recap here. How is Jesus making the stranger, the neighbor. Well, first, he experiences Israel's refugee status as a child, so he knows what it's like to be a stranger. And then if you follow his career, he teaches and lives towards Gentiles exactly as God had commanded Israel, even giving his own life for their, our salvation. Remember, friends, when Jesus is reaching out to strangers and refugees, guess who it is? The only person in this congregation who can claim to, you know, not have been that is Elias. Because he's Jewish. The rest of us, are, we're welcomed in sort of, you know, we're grafted on, right? We're, we're not, we were refugees and strangers. In so doing, Jesus rescues us from our spiritual refugeeness from God. As former spiritual refugees, we are called to seek and save others who are strangers from God like we are. The, the whole point of the gospel is for us to start remembering that we don't belong here. And that we were brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus lives the refugee experience, understands what it feels like, and then lives out God's command to love the stranger as you love yourself. Going so far as to, oh man, die for him. This is not, I'm not making this up. Fortunately, Paul explains this. Listen to this. This is from Ephesians. Therefore, remember that you, us, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is the, called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise. You had no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our shalom peace who has made two one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He knew what it was to be a refugee and he knows how to make the, the stranger a neighbor. Jesus fulfills all the requirements of circumcision of the law and makes brothers and sisters out of Jew and Gentile one people before God, though one was once far off. Friends, we have refugee status. And we've been made people of the land 
in the cross. God reminds Israel over and over that Israel was a refugee. The Christmas story places Jesus also as a refugee in order to fulfill in himself everything Israel was supposed to be and wasn't. Jesus fulfills Israel's role by reaching out to refugees and strangers, welcoming them, them, us, into God's family in accordance with the law. We were spiritual refugees welcomed into God's family by the cross. And so this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to, you know, yell at you. So, we have a Syrian refugee crisis. Just welcome them in. Just love them. Right? And isn't that the clear command of the gospel? Are we not supposed to continue in Israel's tradition, welcoming in those who are strangers and refugees? Well, friends, and this is the part that Neil wasn't able to spend time on last week very much is that our narrative gets complicated in our current context. It's not as simple as just refugees. It's true. It's true. We can see the Christmas story as a terrorist attack, right? Or we can look at it as a refugee crisis, Jesus being carted off to to Egypt. But there are important differences, and to ignore them is just irresponsible at, at, at best, and mendacious lying at worst. You see, we do live in a context where um, immigrants uh, identify with terrorists and they threat innocent people and they do actually harm them. We know that um, terrorist groups and ISIS have publicly declared that they are trying to put plants in uh, with Syrian refugees uh, to export terror uh, to countries in Europe and the United States and North America. I should even add in uh, the economic concerns, uh, depressed wages. There's a concern about immigration in our country right now because a lot of people think that um, the more we bring in uh, people from other countries, the harder it is for uh, Americans to um, compete in a global economy. It gets really complicated. And how do we live out our faith in times like these? You see, it seems like the Christian story compels us in a certain way to welcome the stranger and to look for spiritual responses in the midst of of the chaos and and death that that terrorists bring. We're supposed to be looking up higher. We're supposed to have welcome welcome and open arms. And yet at the same time, we live in a nation state that has a responsibility to keep the peace. We seem to have two competing commitments This is something that a lot of us are familiar with, especially um, my wife. My wife is familiar with this. Uh, She's, um, you know what, I'm just going to brag a little bit about Aaron, just for a second. I don't know if you guys know this, but as far as people who deal specifically with interventions for children with autism go, my wife is just fabulously... um, She's wonderful, to the point that uh, she's, people are constantly in her district trying to you know, move her up. She, she doesn't, here's the thing, she doesn't just keep peace with the bureaucrats. Anyone can do that, well, most people can do that. She also keeps peace with the parents and the children themselves because she actually loves them, and she actually wants them to have the best possible outcome. And so as a result, people are trying to be like, Aaron, we want to move you up higher up in the district, move you up into administration, move you up to this, to this, this. They're constantly just throwing jobs at her. You're great. You're amazing. 
something I wish that I would experience, but it's okay. <laughs> Chronic underachiever, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> and so Erin's constantly in this quandary where she's like, what do I want? Do I want more money? Or do I want to follow my vocation? Right? And this is something that a lot of people deal with. Uh, you have these opportunities. Do I want more money? Do I want to follow my vac- vocation? And then really what you do is you weigh out what's most valuable, and then you go with that. The money. Just kidding. Seriously, the money. But here's the problem, friends. You can't do that in theology. Christians don't get to do that. We don't get to make that choice. Christians don't get to say, well, what do I value more? My safety and security. So when we deal with competing commitments, we have to understand them theologically because God's call in our life is complete. It's whole. We don't get to pick and choose what, you know, what commands we follow. And so it's important. It's critical for us as we're thinking about our current context and our commitments as uh, people of a particular nation state to, to, to know what God would have of us. And that's why I want to highlight for us a theological tradition that this church specifically is a part of. It's a tradition that was begun by Martin Luther, and really he's following St. Augustine, uh, who wrote some uh, suggestive things in in the city of God. Martin Luther, during the Reformation, is a part of a, a context where there's civil war going on. And he's trying to figure out how to deal with that. And at the same time, he's a Christian, and his people are Christians. And to, to deal with it, he comes up with a doctrine. This is number three in your note sheets. Martin Luther, following St. Augustine, developed the theology of the two governments or kingdoms. They are the secular government and the spiritual government. Let's listen to what Martin Luther has to say. For this reason, God has ordained the two governments. The spiritual, which by the Holy Spirit under Christ makes Christians and pious people. You might think of this as the church. And the secular which restrains the unchristian and wicked, so that they must needs keep the peace outwardly. He assumes that non-Christians are going to be evil, but the secular government forces them to act like civilized, loving people, even against their will. So Paul, and Martin Luther is dealing with uh, some scripture here, which we're going to look at in just a second, interprets the secular sword and says it is not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Um, Let's bring up that... uh, that text. This is Romans 13, 3-4. Martin Luther is reflecting on this text as he writes, as he develops the theology of the two governments. And, and Paul says this in Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good works. Rulers, kings, governments. They're not a threat to good works. They're a threat to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good. You'll have praise from the same. For he, the ruler, the king, the government, is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, if you blow people up, look out. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices suicide bombings. You see, Martin Luther is dealing with this text from Paul, and at the same time he hears Jesus' words in his, in his ear, Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. And Martin Luther is trying to put the two together, and he, he develops a tradition that I think is very strong in this church, a tradition that says, for, for the record, uh, Roman Catholic and even uh, some peace churches have uh, versions of this theology. But for our church, Martin Luther really is probably the touchdown. Uh, he, he puts together the idea that there's the church where you do church stuff, and there's the government where you have to do stuff that's not very churchly sometimes. Sometimes. 
Let's look at the two, uh, the two governments, the two kingdoms. There's the secular government. The secular government wields violence to keep the peace. But this is the thing. True Christians work for the government. How can that be? How can that be? People who have been told to turn the other cheek can work for a government that executes violence. The government still, no matter what it does, the secular government never has authority over Christian conscience or practice. In fact, throughout the church, people have resisted uh, the government in order to live out their faith as they believe it ought to be lived. So that's the secular government. But then over here is the spiritual government, the church. And for us, the scriptures, which regulate Christian faith and practice. Christian conscience may cause us to object or disobey the secular government, the secular kingdom. Keep going, the spiritual government. The Christian may act in service to the secular government, and this is what's so crazy, in ways normally prohibited by the spiritual government. You see, when you're in church, friends, and, I mean, this hasn't happened recently, but you can imagine, Neil is just upset with you because you've been sinning so much. And Neil confronts you, And he just slaps you across the face and says, stop it. You in your flesh might think, ah, that's it, you're going to get one. No, 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 because here you are under the authority of Christ. And so you say, give me another one, Neil. I've earned it. A Christian may, however, when outside of here, when outside of the spiritual realm, when working for the government, when working to do what governments do, may disobey that turn-the-other-cheek command when acting as a member of, for example, law enforcement or a soldier in a just or righteous war, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So that's in your note sheets. For Luther, number four, a true Christian may disobe- disobey, which is just wild when you think about it just on the surface, Jesus' command to turn the other cheek when acting in the interests of a righteous state. Now, it, it, disobey there sounds a little harsh. I mean, I, I certainly hope that as Christians we're never really disobeying Jesus. And, and what Luther is going to say, and, and what I hope we would also say, is that we're not disobeying Jesus' command. It's just that the secular sphere has a job to do. And if the secular sphere doesn't do its job very well, there aren't going to be any Christians at all. There's just going to be chaos and violence as far as the eye can see. And so when law enforcement or military people are doing their job, what they're doing is creating a space where nonviolence has a place. It's often been said that, uh, you know, Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolent resistance only works because he was in a Christian empire. When you're in an empire that responds to nonviolence with more and ever increasingly excessive violence, it's very, very hard to get traction. That's out there. But in here, and really in any, li- any, any part of our life that's really not political as such, not working for the government, we're ruled entirely by the ethics of the gospel. And that is unequivocal. Marilyn, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip, up, I'm going to skip the next slide and go to uh, the second, living with the two governments. 
here in 2015 at Coast Bible Church inheriting uh, St. Augustine and Martin Luther's um, theology of the two kingdoms or the two governments. We do have to address our present uh, context with evangelism and hospitality. Evangelism towards uh, those who might otherwise be suspect and hospitality to the stranger. This is the key part right here. Regardless. Regardless of how individual Christians vote or what policies they promote. You and I, we live in a liberal democracy, a republic. Um, We are government servants in a way that they did not understand in the ancient world. Every single one of us who's 18 or older has apparently a responsibility to participate in the government. So every single one of us has to put on that secular hat. And that's okay. Our governments do what governments do. When you take that hat off, though, and you're not voting, and you're not enacting policy, and you're not David Mansdorfer working for a politician, when you're not doing those things, you are a Christian. And as a Christian, you are commanded by the gospel and by God throughout the scriptures. We, we are commanded by the gospel throughout the scriptures to love and to welcome and ultimately to convert. A little story about that. Uh, for those of you who've been a part of our church for a long time, you may know that um, we supported for a long time some Haitian missionaries, missionaries in Haiti. This is not Mike and Carrie. This is before them, uh, the Noah Lee's family. Well, the Noah Lee's family um, became refugees to the United States of America. Uh, Yvonne uh, was threatened at gunpoint because of his Christian mission in Haiti, and he was so scared that they came over to our country illegally. They had no, um, no legal status. And so what did um, those in the, in the church who stro- are strongly against illegal immigration do? Did, did they kick Yvonne right back out? No. No. Even in this, ch- in this church, even those who were very, very passionately um, opposed to illegal immigration got behind an effort, an almost decade-long effort, to make sure that the Noah East family got legal status. And the hero in that story is our former worship director, Kalua Seiko, um, herself of Japanese uh, descent, interestingly, who worked pro bono hours as a lawyer to ensure that the Noah East family uh, got legal status. In that example, this church lived in two Governments, two kingdoms, where there are people in this church who were very, very much uh, against the idea of illegal immigration, and yet were very, very much for the Noah East family. And I think, I, I, I don't think that that would be a very bad model for those uh, here who um, strongly oppose illegal immigration to think about the current refugee crisis. Um, you can support politicians and policies that, that minimize um, these things without, without losing your Christian witness to those who come and are here. I have a friend uh, from New Zealand. His name is Murray Ray. He's a theologian, a Presbyterian. And uh, don't hold that against him. He's really a good guy. Uh, in, in New Zealand. And New Zealand, the government in New Zealand has agreed to take a certain number of Syrian refugees. New Zealand's very small. There's only three million people there. And they're kind of just, whoa, how are we going to you know, do this? And so Murray, um, who has in his own congregation people who are very much against the government policy, has nevertheless, has nevertheless uh, engaged in a, an, an organization where they've partnered with the government to, to identify and locate people who are coming into the country as a result of the Syrian refugee crisis. And they're assigning them to uh, families in the church. 
And so the families in the church have a responsibility to welcome them into dinner uh, once a week, to provide them a place to stay, to help them get on their feet, uh, help them locate jobs. And ultimately, um, and this is, I think, critical, invite them to church. You know, it's funny, I don't have a, I didn't show all the, um, the text, but all throughout the Old Testament, the reason that, that, that God commands this loving embrace of the stranger is not so that the stranger can remain the stranger. It's so that the stranger becomes a Jew. There's texts all over the Old Testament where, oh, just because someone has a different heritage doesn't mean that they have a different worship than you do. Welcome them in. If they're interested, please make them people of God. And we as Christians are called to evangelize those, even those we find suspect. That's who we are. That's what we're called to do. And that is what Murray Ray and his Presbyterian friends in New Zealand are doing. Right now at Mariner's Mission Viejo, um, there's a guy named Maher Salani who's um, involved in their uh, outreach uh, programs. And, and he's put together a, 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 a way of welcoming in Syrian refugees here to Orange County. They're not, they're not here yet, uh, at least part of the, the, the group that's coming. But they are coming. And he's trying to do his best to make sure that the people of Mariner's Mission Viejo are assigned and are involved in the lives of those who are coming. We are one of our missionaries. Sami Tanaho wrote Glad News for Muslim. Muslims. He himself is from Egypt, a former Muslim who has come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and who wants to share that with people who haven't yet. These are examples of hospitality. We use the word hospitality and a lot of times we think that that's fuzzy or squishy like, oh, let's be nice to each other. No. Hospitality is how you treat your family. If you're a part of my family, you know that that's often very rude and very uh, blunt and very uh, just rough. But that's what you do with your family. You tell them the truth. You invite the ones that don't believe to believe. Your family is, is your mission field in a lot of ways. And that's what hospitality to the stranger and the refugee is in Scripture. We have a secular government that we can participate and be involved in and with policies and this, that, and the other thing. But when push comes to shove, when people are dropped in our laps, we are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to evangelize and welcome. Anytime you're not a part of the secular government, this is the last thing in your notes, Christian you, we, as difficult and as scary as it can sometimes be, are obligated to serve the interests of the gospel. To serve the interests of the gospel. And when you do that, friends, all you're doing is what Jesus did in his life and at the cross, what Israel was called to do and so often failed and is what is at the absolute heart of God's love for people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we, um, in this church, move into 2016, as we engage a culture that is increasingly difficult to understand and increasingly difficult to live with, I pray that we will nevertheless be your evangelists, your generous welcome to all the world. God, I pray for a powerful movement of your spirit to change hearts, especially of those who seek to do us harm.
that you will melt their hearts with the love of your grace, the forgiveness of sin, the hope of life eternal. God, we commit to you um, our secular kingdom, our secular government. God, that you will provide wise decisions, that you will give us wisdom as we seek to influence it. But more than that, God, we pray that in this church, we will be the Christmas story. As once refugees, now brought near by your blood, we will tell the good news to all and sundry and welcome them home. In the name of your son we pray, amen.